Welcome back, everybody. Go help yourself a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I am Lisa Linky, your favorite of the Lisa Linkies that you know. And across from me on Zoom is Misty Stinnett, the most favorite of the Misty Stinnets that you know. This is a podcast where every Friday we read and review a popular self-help book. I almost said podcast. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Uh, We review other self-help podcasts. We're terrible (laughs) concepts. (laughs) It would get really meta really fast. We read and review a popular self-help book, and we give you all of the nitty-gritty about it in under an hour so you'll know whether it's worth your time, energy, money, and just, quite frankly, your sanity. And if you want to support the author, because sometimes (laughs) you really do and sometimes you really don't. And then on Tuesdays, our follow-up episode is the Weekly Beef, where we check in on any homework we may have assigned uh, each other and our listeners if they want to partake and do some supplemental material to just kind of round out the experience of self-help as a genre. You could say it's a wholehearted approach. Well, that's a tip to the head of what's coming up today. I like to say it's a whole (laughs) approach. Mm, How do you spell that? Whole (laughs) approach. Oh, oh, got it. Thank you. That's how you spell it. Just a couple, what do I say? Housekeeping agenda items. One, we do cuss because life is fucking difficult. Two, we are (laughs) timestamping our episodes while this is coming out in 2021. Hallelujah by 2020. Don't ever come around again. Goodbye, Um, goodbye. That's not how time works, Lisa. (laughs) We are recording this on 11-11-20. And so we are still confused as to how the transition of power is going to happen in our country, but we're confident that it will. Fingers crossed (laughs) with our last episode. Not so sure. We are recording in advance because we have a lot of fun and special things happening this year and we needed most of December to prepare for them. So we appreciate your understanding our projecting into the future. And last but not least, we do say it at the end, but we really do ask that you rate, review, subscribe, and recommend our podcast because that's how people find us. My guess is that you probably found us either by hearing it from a friend or by doing a search in your podcast platform of choice. And because other people had rated, reviewed, subscribed, that really helps you find us. And we're your tiny pocket friends. We want to have more tiny pocket friends. And with that... Listen, we've got huge pockets. Everybody get in here. We can all oh, fit we in were, the we were in warm pocket of humanity and the pants of disdain. Okay. I'm going to move us along and say, Misty, <laughs> speaking of whole, what did you bring for us today? Oh, my gosh. Lisa, listen, as Lisa said, we are reading books at warp speed right now. Yeah. And this book utterly stopped me in my tracks. And I think it's one of my favorite books I've ever read, fiction or nonfiction. This week, I am bringing you the number one New York Times bestseller, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. Woohoo! Oh, man. Truth, I want to be honest. I spent a good 10 minutes this morning looking for my copy. 
And I think it's in one of my shame closets, which is full of boxes I haven't broken down yet, and I can't get to it. I'm sorry. It is so ironic that your copy of The Gifts of Imperfection would be in something that you call a shame closet, because because Brene Brown's a shame researcher. (laughs) Yes, it's like crazy packed to the rim with boxes that I haven't broken down. Yeah. And I just, I, I only do it when like my mom comes, because it's like a fun activity to do with somebody else. And my landlord doesn't like doing it with me. Your actual so, landlord or Zoe, your dog landlord? Zoe is Both. my actual landlord. She <laughs> yeah, she doesn't like the sound of, you know, cardboard ripping. Yeah. So yeah, so that's so I looked for it and I can't find it. But I did the online class with a group of my good close Chicago female friends who moved out to LA and mm. we did it. And I have a picture in my guest room of all of us with I'm imperfect and that's okay on our hand written and like oh. it's it's one of my favorite pictures. Yeah. And so you're referencing the online course that she has to With accompany Oprah. this yeah. book, right? Yeah. Yes. So she's got a lot of really wonderful resources on brenebrown.com. That link will be in show notes as always. And I absolutely want to check those out. And truly, Lisa, you might just want to buy a new copy of the 10th anniversary edition, which mm-hmm. just came out this year. It's the one I read. There's okay. a couple small updates, not to the main body of the text, but sure. to the intro and a couple things that I will go over. But this is a book I love to consume. My book's on audiobook. Mm-hmm. And Brene has this like warm, buttery voice that just feels yeah. like you're chatting with a friend. So I really enjoyed listening to this audiobook. But I might buy the hardcover or a paperback when the 10th anniversary edition comes out for well, reasons you're about to hear. Okay, you know that if if any of you have listened to the Marie Kondo episode, you know that I know that it's here in the house, and so therefore I will not buy another copy because I know I already own one. (laughs) The imperfection is coming from inside the house. (laughs) Misty, if you tell me, if if you can give us the premise of this book in one sentence. Yeah, I think it would be something like, if we were all to be able to embrace our imperfection and authenticity— we would actually have so much more of the things we're striving for in life right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I absolutely loved this book. So here are the prices of the book very quickly. The hardcover is $23 on bookshop.org, and it is 100% that kind of book. There's not a paperback yet of the 10th anniversary edition, but earlier versions also go for $15.59 on bookshop.org, which supports small bookstores. So as Lisa and I have mentioned a few times, we're moving away from Amazon and from Audible because we want to support small bookstores. And so we have a whole page on bookshop.org that has all the books we've covered since the beginning of the podcast, if you want to see those and if anybody does use our link, we will get some sum of pennies or something, and all proceeds will go directly to supporting the podcast and the cost of production of the podcast. Moving on, the Kindle, if you still want a digital version, is $12.99. The audiobook is $21 on Libro.fm or Libro.fm. We're not sure how to say it. Same idea. It's an audiobook company a lot like Audible, but it supports smaller bookstores. And on the Overdrive app, it's free, but there is a massive, massive wait. So my very first impressions of this book, as far as it being practical or woo-woo, 
This book is about understanding complex human emotions and dynamics through research-based studies. So it's highly practical, but because it touches on so many emotional concepts, it feels more like an insightful philosophical book, even though it's based in science. And I love, love, loved that. This is Misty's jam. It is my jam. I want to spread it on toast. I want to put it in smoothies. It's so good. But she does such a beautiful balance of weaving in, hey, here's what I discovered in research, to here's how you can apply it, to here are anecdotes when I applied it or had a lot of trouble applying it. So it's this really beautiful kind of like example-based anecdotal research book. She's the real deal. She is There's no wonder that she's taken off like she has. Like, she is just so relatable and such a master storyteller. Authentic. I know I love her. Hardcover is 208 pages, and the audiobook is 4 hours and 31 minutes. So it's really not a crazy long book that's going to take up too much of your time, but it will crack your brain and soul wide open. As far as what I thought when I first picked it up, I loved, Lisa, you're going to go nuts for this, that Brene included a new introduction to the book acknowledging how intersectionality and systemic racism informs this work. Thank you. Her work is all about being vulnerable and combating shame, but if you live under circumstances where it's not safe to be vulnerable, then you will never be able to do this work. And she says that doing work like this should not just be for those privileged enough to feel safe, which I thought was stunning. Mm -hmm. And it is such a beautiful example of how an author can acknowledge the complexities of their reader situations and all the different systems in the world at the beginning of the book. Take that, Cal Newport. Yes, it was this beautiful, powerful caveat. And I just kept thinking, that's how it's done. And Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it made me want to scream at other authors like, see, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. It's not because, you know, a lot of authors have said like, it's easy. It's just that simple. (laughs) Uh, Because a lot of authors have said, well, if I addressed every single caveat, everything, every time I write, it's going to bog down my writing. And it's like, you want an example of a five-minute caveat that's powerful and makes everyone feel included? Check out the 10th anniversary of this book. Also, that so, was a stunning impression of Cal Newport. Oh, th- thank you so much. He sounds a little bit like this. He has a podcast. Here we go. I love Cal Newport, but also caveats are great. So a little bit about Brene. If you don't mm-hmm. know much, this is from her author's webpage on Amazon.com. Dr. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brene Brown Endowed Chair at the Graduate College of Social Work. She spent the past two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy, and is the author of five number one New York bestsellers, The Gifts Mm -hmm. of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness, and her latest book, Dare to Lead, which is the culmination of a seven-year study on courage and leadership. And she also has at least one other book that maybe it wasn't a New York Times bestseller, so it's not in this list, but it's called I Thought It Was Just Me, uh, which is really And then there's also a whole farted living. Whole farted living. That feels just so freeing (laughs) and smelly. So Brene's TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world with over 35 million views. She is also the first researcher to have a filmed talk on Netflix. The Mm -hmm. Call to Courage special debuted on the streaming service on April 19th, 2019. And I've watched it, and it's it has the feel of stand-up comedy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not like joke, 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 although there are jokes in there. And like, just think about that for a second. A researcher has a filmed special on Netflix. She's amazing. So Brene lives in Houston, Texas with her husband, Steve. They have two children, Ellen and Charlie. Okay, so I am going to sort of walk you through how the book is structured and then focus on a couple of sections because I would love to spend four hours telling you all about the book, but you should just buy it and support her and mark up a copy for yourself. (laughs) I have things to do today. (laughs) Thank you so much. I need to eat. So after she's given this amazing introduction, she talks about something else she's included space for in this book. And this was the first time I'd ever heard of this. It's called an integration index. Have you ever heard of this, Lise? I remember it, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. So I don't know if it was in the first version or not, but I thought this concept was so cool. It's basically a way to make the work that you're reading your own. So think about an index. It's usually just organized by keyword if you want to go back and find a keyword. But Brene encourages everybody to make their own index. So she has things she wants to discuss over family dinner, like concepts she wants to. So she'll highlight a passage she wants to talk about with her family. And then she'll either write down a little bit of it or the page number. She has another section on the index that's like, didn't understand, need to research more. She has something else that's something like need to read again when I'm in a better emotional state, if she's getting triggered about a concept she's reading. Mm -hmm. But you can see how you can almost use this as a step in Zettelkasten from Mm -hmm. How to Take Smart Notes, which we have an episode on, and it is this amazing way to synthesize all kinds of new information and make new connections. But I just never thought of taking an index and making it my own. Like, I might have a section that's, like, personally relevant to me, things I want to work on in my life. Yes. That kind of thing. So this book is all about wholehearted living. And here is how Brene defines that. Wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. So this book focuses on 10 guideposts that can help us to live more wholeheartedly and to find the acceptance and belonging that so many of us deeply crave. The guideposts are a spectrum that include the kinds of behaviors and thinking we want to let go of all the way to the types that we want to cultivate. Mm -hmm. So this is how the book is structured. She's got that amazing introduction and preface. She talks about wholehearted living. And then she talks about the gifts of imperfection, which are courage, compassion, and connection, exploring the power of love, belonging, and being enough. So we have this framework. Now, the next section of the book is called The Things That Get in the Way, and these are all the guideposts. So we have guidepost number one, cultivating authenticity, letting go of what people think. Guidepost two, cultivating self-compassion, letting go of perfectionism. Guidepost three, Cultivating a resilient spirit, letting go of numbing and powerlessness. Four, cultivating gratitude and joy, letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. Guidepost five, cultivating intuition and trusting faith, letting go of the need for certainty. Number six, cultivating creativity, letting go of comparison. Number seven, 
cultivating play and rest, letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth. And you know Mm -hmm. that spoke to me. (laughs) Guidepost number eight, cultivating calm and stillness, letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Number nine, cultivating meaningful work, letting go of self-doubt and supposed to. And guidepost 10, cultivating laughter, song, and dance, letting go of being cool and always in control. Then she's got final thoughts and about the research process, which she says is for thrill seekers and methodology junkies. Mm -hmm. And then that integration index, et cetera. So you can also take a quick assessment on brenebrown.com that will, before you read the book, she recommends, that will tell you where you currently fall on the spectrum of each of the guideposts. And she recommends you do this before reading so you can more deeply engage with the material on a personal level. Sure, to know where you need to kind of dig in Yeah, yeah. And did you do this in your course, Lise? That I don't remember us doing because, again, it was like a video course. Mm -hmm. But we also had the book. So, like, I don't know if there was a quiz at the 10 years ago or whatever. Oh, and did you take it 10 years ago and it was pretty new? Well, it was like seven years ago when I first moved out Got it, got it, got it. I did it, and I was really surprised to learn how far I still have to go in order to live wholeheartedly. But like, as I was reading the book, I was like, oh, God, I have so much work to do. (laughs) So I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the gifts of imperfection and the first two guideposts, and then I'm going to throw in one extra guidepost so that we can hit those kind of the context and the setup really hard because it's fucking amazing, everybody. I love it. So the gifts of imperfection are courage, compassion, and connection. Brene says practicing courage, compassion, and connection in our daily lives is how we cultivate worthiness. And the key word is practice. This You don't reach a state of full, permanent, wholehearted living, no problem. It's something you always have to be working towards. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each one of these elements. So courage. Brene says she sees courage in herself when she's willing to risk being vulnerable and disappointed. So for example, she says that for many years, when she really wanted something to happen, like to get a speaking invitation or to do a a television interview, she would play it down. And I think a lot of us do this. I definitely do. A friend would ask if she was excited, and she'd shrug it off like it wasn't a big deal. But of course, in reality, she was praying that it would happen. But she says she only learned in the last few years that playing down the exciting stuff doesn't take the pain away when it doesn't happen. It Mm -hmm. does, however, minimize the joy when it does happen. It also creates a lot of isolation. Once you've diminished the importance of something, your friends are not likely to call you up and say, I'm sorry that didn't work out. I know you were really excited about it. When things don't pan out, you have a better chance of being supported by the people you love if you share your excitement and be courageous and vulnerable about what you're hoping for. So then we go to compassion. In Latin, compassion means to suffer with. So we invite compassion into our lives when we practice it with other people and when we reach out and connect. So Brene does an amazing job explaining what kinds of responses are truly compassionate that you either need to hear when you're reaching out to someone and feeling vulnerable or that you can provide to someone when they're reaching out to you. And pro tip, these do not involve blame, shame, or judgment. And so if you want to hear these, absolutely read these, this chapter. She says, very importantly, 
Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only Mm -hmm. when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. But here's a surprising note about compassion and boundaries, which I wasn't expecting to hear. Compassionate people, she says, are boundaried people. The heart of compassion is really acceptance. The better we are at accepting ourselves and others, the more compassionate we become. But it's difficult to accept people when they're hurting us or taking advantage of us. If we really want to practice compassion, we have to start by setting boundaries and holding people accountable for their behavior. And I think this feels a little bit antithetical. Like you wouldn't think you need to say like, hey, don't do this X, Y, Z, or here's my boundary to be compassionate. But it's so true. Well, I think it's having compassion for yourself first. It's practicing compassion for yourself. Yes, and I am setting a boundary for myself. Is having compassion for yourself. So um, it does feel antithetical. And for a lot of us, I think we learn it last. We learn compassion for ourselves last. Absolutely. So it seems kind of counterintuitive. It does. And we will get into how that can be problematic when we're not compassionate with ourselves in a few minutes. So finally, connection. The energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued is how she defines connection. So connection is when they can give and receive without judgment and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. Mm -hmm. She says that we are all wired biologically for connection. We need it to thrive in all areas of life. And this is backed up by hard neuroscience. This is not really something we can get around or ignore. And it's not touchy-feely in the woods. Yeah. Hard neuroscience. Oh, no. Hard neuroscience. Real hard, long neuroscience. Truly outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. (laughs) And then, like, an electric guitar solo goes as there's a love song and a saxophone. (laughs) (laughs) I used to play sax. Tenor, holla, eighth grade band. What? Yep. I sold my saxophone only last year. So here is the kicker about connection. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. There's this myth of self-sufficiency. So many of us derive self-worth from the idea of never needing help and doing everything on our own. And I think especially in America or Western capitalist societies, it's all this like self-made, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. It's always even self-help, right? Self, self, self. But Brene says, until we can receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. Well, what the fuck does she know? (laughs) Thank you. That's right. No, that's true. Brene, come on the podcast. When we attach judgment to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment to giving help. And this blew me away because I personally am still so uncomfortable receiving real help. You know, it feels like such a naked and scary experience. And especially during this pandemic, I've called you a few times and been like, I can't stop crying and I don't know why. And it feels And I say, good luck. And I hang up. That's it. Or she just sends me a text that says like, BRB, doing something more important. It feels, you know, to truly say, like, I need help and I'm not doing okay on my own because I'm comfortable crying and sharing emotions, but always when it feels like I'm in control of it and just need to talk out an idea with somebody, but to truly yeah. be, like, vulnerable and be like, I Yes, help. I also do want to add in from her book, Daring Greatly, which we covered, that 
not everybody deserves your vulnerability. Yes. And we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I can't do that, you're right. Mm-hmm. You don't, pe- random strangers on the street or people who have repeatedly let you down do not deserve your they vulnerability. Don't. Like and that. you do not want to open yourself up and say, I'm really struggling, I'm hurting. And get a response back that's something like, well, that's because you're doing things wrong. And how dare you do that? You know, that can be really damaging. Which is what I say to Misty all the time. She calls. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have this podcast. (laughs) I love it. This is so dark. But yeah. So she says repeatedly throughout the book, if we have even one person Mm -hmm. that we feel truly seen by, that we can be our full, true, authentic self with and feel accepted, we are so very lucky. A therapist. What? Your therapist? Mm-hmm. Well, now I have like quite a few people in my support system that I can absolutely be vulnerable with. Mm. But, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't have that. Yeah. And only when I started therapy did I start to, and it took a long time with my therapist to feel that. Absolutely. And I think it takes a long time to build up the skills to recognize who's safe and who's not. Yeah. And to test the waters. Because I think a lot of us, like if we're just blindly trusting we can get hurt or we do get hurt when we're young, right? Because we haven't learned the hard lessons yet. So it's absolutely an emotional risk. But as she says, like, these are kind of necessary risks to take sometimes or to continue trying to take because we're never going to get that deep connection without those risks. So here's how the three gifts of imperfection work together, all synergized. When you have the courage to reach out and you receive or give compassion you then get the connection that helps create worthiness. Mm -hmm. You feel worthy as you are. So guidepost number one is cultivating authenticity, letting go of what people think. Brene defines authenticity as the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be in order to embrace who we really are. She Mm. says authenticity is a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It's about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, the choice to let our true selves be seen. And I think I had to read the sentence like 10 times. Well, it really resonated with me. And I remember probably in my 20s, I don't even think I was aware that I wasn't even like... Being authentic or true to yourself. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't even aware of my own authenticity, right? Like, I don't think I could be honest with myself about a lot of things. Yeah. And in my 30s, I think I started to become aware of how I had this ideal self, my late 20s and early 30s. I had this ideal self who did all of these things all day long and it wasn't me. And, you know, it was my therapist saying like, well, who is that ideal self? And like, why does she do those things? And, you know, why does she have to do those things? And just recognizing that this ideal self I created in my mind was a projection of society's idea of what I should be rather than like what I wanted to do, what I felt like I needed to do or how I was feeling in that day. Yes, absolutely. And I think the really scary thing and is this gray area between, okay, I recognize my people-pleasing tendencies. I rec, you know, maybe hypothetically you're sitting there going, okay, I keep working at this job and I just bought the car I'm supposed to have, and I'm dating the person I'm supposed to date, you know, but like, it all feels like it's just because you're supposed to. But once you realize some people-pleasing tendencies, if you don't know who you are authentically are, 
that's when it can be really scary because I have been going, like, I keep hearing people say, like, be true to yourself, be authentic. And I go, but what do I actually like? What is important to me? What do I want? And that is the whole discovery process in and of itself. So it is that that's surrounded around you and not around what other people think of you. Exactly. And we're going to talk about it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the shift from what do other people think to what do I think? But yeah, it's really interesting because I don't think there's a ton of really commonly discussed ways of how to discover yourself, your authentic self. And I mean, just among friends. So, you know, it's a journey to discover who, who you are authentically are before you can really move into that. But even just starting to recognize when you're in people-pleasing mode or when you're doing things that don't fulfill you is an amazing first step. So I like to just squat over a mirror. <laughs> That's how I get to know who I am on the inside. Listen, and ladies, if you haven't done this yet, do it. Because why not? We talk about this in Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So... Brene says that this means fostering the courage to admit we are imperfect and vulnerable. So this is how we start to move into Shut our- Shut up, Brene. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm Not me. I'm fine. I'm, you seem fine. So this is a really tall order. She admits, thank God. She says it's much easier to default into a position of people-pleasing when shame descends. However, if authenticity is our goal, rather than being liked or having things our way, positive outcomes do not depend on other people. Authenticity Mm -hmm, in our interactions means staying true to ourselves. Guidepost number two, cultivating self-compassion, letting go of perfectionism. And I'm going to spend the most time on this guidepost because it sets up a ton of the major concepts in the book, but still we will fly through. So Brene says perfectionism is a roadblock to authenticity because it is built on the false belief that if we are perfect, we will not suffer the shame or pain of others' judgment. But Brene Brown says there are no prerequisites for worthiness. And this is something that's really, really hard for a lot of us to feel. We think, yeah, I'm worthy of loving, love and belonging. Sure, I like myself but I'd be more worthy if I lost 10 pounds or made partner or if my wife didn't leave me. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea of wholeheartedness is about engaging with the world from a place of worthiness. At the heart of wholeheartedness is this, I am worthy now. No matter what gets done today or how it gets done or what happens, I am enough and worthy of love right now. So she goes on to say that fitting in and belonging are not the same thing. And I love that she broke this down. I'd never heard it this way. Fitting in means assessing the situation and becoming who you need to be to fit in. Belonging means being exactly who you are. Can you feel the difference? I can. I do want to acknowledge too that sometimes fitting in is a survival skill. Exactly. And that is why she had added that introduction at the top right? Mm -hmm. Not all of this applies to everybody because if you're not safe to be authentically you, then you do have to conform, right? To get by. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. again, thank you. That's how it's done, y'all. And that can be moment to moment, right? Like Exactly. It's not like just a a lifetime thing. It can also be moment to moment. Or year to year. If you need to fit in to get in on the ground floor of your dream job, slowly work your way to CEO, 
and then change and the entire then, company and your image? Yeah. We say yes. And then blow it up? Yes. We say yes. So this guidepost is also where she talks a lot about shame. Her definition is this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. And she makes sure to point out the difference between shame and guilt. So guilt— Why she got to be so personal? I know. It's like, listen, and that's why she's saying, like, if any of this triggers you, come back to it later, you know? Lisa, shame is this. Lisa. Lisa Linky. (laughs) So the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt. I did something bad. Shame. I am I am bad. bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she has this in her book, Daring Greatly, too. Yeah. And I mean, it bears repeating every day <laughs> yes. for the rest of eternity. So there are three things to know about shame. One, everyone has it. Two, we're all afraid to talk about it. And three, the less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. Yeah. She also says it can be just as hard to own our strengths as our struggles. Think about mm-hmm. when someone says, like, you really did an amazing job on that project. How no, many of us go like stop it? It is like, no, it was nothing. Oh, it was not it was nothing. No, that all no, it's fine. You it did. It was all you. It really was teamwork. As opposed to, thank you so much. I worked so hard on that and I am proud of it. I'm so glad yeah. that it resonated with you. Yeah. Why is that such a scary thing to do? You know, we're all afraid we, of we are because of how we might be perceived. Yeah, it's not coming off as narcissistic, yeah. but, but truly, like anyway. So that I'm was. I actually left out the fourth distinguishing feature of shame, which is that it smells like stinky cheese. It does. It's wholehearted living. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Blue cheese, smelly. Uh, Cambozola. I did not intend to set you up like that, but goddamn, Misty, thank listen, you. That was so good. Listen, you said it. I spiked it. Okay. But thank God, we're not just talking about shame and being like, well, good fucking luck. Turns out we can cultivate shame resilience. So shame resilience is the ability to recognize shame, to move through it constructively while maintaining worthiness and authenticity, and to ultimately develop more courage, compassion, and connection as the result of our experience. Doesn't that sound Can you say that again? Because I did leave my body briefly while you were explaining it. (laughs) Shame resilience is the ability to recognize shame, to move through it constructively while maintaining worthiness and authenticity, and to ultimately develop more courage, compassion, and connection as the result of our experience. Okay. So what happened was when you said the first definition, I left my body because shame is how I live my life because I was raised in the Midwest. And then I went, but I recognized it because I have done enough work in my life. And then when you repeated it the second time, I realized that now I identify shame in myself. I'm able to tell others that I feel shame. I'm able to receive love and validation and hear people saying back to me, like, you are not bad, you know, to know, to own what is shame, what is truly what I need to feel guilty for, and mm. what is what is shame. And so I like was really proud of myself. So I think me leaving my body was like my brain kind of learning that I had made this progress, but not allowing myself to sit in it. <laughs> Thank you. And these are exactly the kinds of epiphanies you will have while reading this book. Yeah, because it's literally yeah. like so amazing. And I think something you just said, Lisa, is even in the moment— 
saying to someone, I am feeling shame about what happened earlier. I was really embarrassed when I- I stupid. I feel stupid. I I feel feel so so stupid. stupid. I feel ashamed. You know, that gives someone an opportunity to come in and go, oh my gosh, let me, you're so great. You're so great and it's going to be okay. It's not your fault. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So she says, the less we talk about shame, the more we have it. Shame needs three things to grow, secrecy, silence, and judgment. When something shaming happens and we keep it locked up, it festers and grows. Shame loses power when it's spoken. We need to tell our stories. So people with high levels of shame resilience share these four elements according to her research. One, they understand shame and recognize the messages and expectations that trigger shame for them. Dos. They practice critical awareness by reality checking those messages and expectations that tell us that being imperfect means being inadequate. Trois. They reach out and share their stories with people they trust. Fear. (laughs) So cute. They speak shame. They use the word shame. They talk about how they're feeling and ask for what they need. That just made me think of in Game of Thrones. I didn't watch, but everybody knows the shame, shame oh, man. with the bell. That scene. Oh, that was rough. Okay. So much of worthiness. Like, what if it's reshot and Brene Brown comes out from the crowd and she's <laughs> hey, just honey. like, Cersei, <laughs> what do you need right now? I'm right here with you. I've been there. And this happened to me three days ago. Her. Yeah. Shame <laughs> on you. So much of worthiness and shame resilience is owning and sharing our stories, but not everyone is worthy of hearing our stories. Ask yourself who has earned the right to hear them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. So she circles back here and connects perfectionism with shame, which is so brilliant. She says, where perfectionism exists, shame is always lurking. Shame is the birthplace of perfectionism. Perfectionism Mm. is not about healthy achievement and growth. Perfectionism is the belief that if we live perfect enough, look perfect enough, or act perfect enough, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. It's a shield. It's a 20-ton shield that we lug around thinking it will protect us, but it's actually stopping us from taking flight. See, this is why the gifts of imperfection. <laughs> made Thank me you. different from how to be an imperfectionist because how to be an imperfectionist brought in no concept of shame, Nothing. no concept of no emotional living. ties. Just do it. Just do it. It's that simple. Just do it. Oh my God. And I think that's why at the end of that book review, so we covered how to be an imperfectionist, which we call imperfectionist because of my own typo a couple months ago. And you can just burn that book and read this one. Like there's no reason. There's no reason. I'm you know say what I mean? Don't buy that book. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Or if you want to like actively like go. Anyway. Buy it, burn um, it, and then buy this one. <laughs> well, it just feels, now that I've read this, that mm-hmm. just feels so surface level. You know, well, and like you said, that would be perfect for a young person who's maybe never had a self-help You're right. Book. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a young person's probably not going to be like, oh my God, like shame and self-invention. Shame. <laughs> yeah. Build yeah. my resiliency to shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's like a good first baby step for a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old. And then this is really, when your life has been hell for a decade, pick up this book, you guys. You're going to love it's it. It's like, Brene Brown is the Ben and Jerry's of, mm. you know, good for you, wholehearted ice cream. Mm-hmm. And that book was like a knockoff 
frozen that's got freezer burn yeah yogurt yeah it was not satisfying. like if you're not if satisfying. you're desperate it'll work in a pinch or if you don't know any better yeah oh yeah i I'll, i love my freezer burn flavored popsicle treat <laughs> so this is how 2021 is going which is really the mm-hmm. end of 2020 for us so you're welcome that's right Understanding the difference between healthy striving and perfectionism is critical to laying down the shield and picking up your life. Research shows that perfectionism hampers success. In fact, it's often the path to depression, anxiety, addiction, and life paralysis. Let why, that sink in. Why are they targeting me? For a why are they second. targeting me? <laughs> no, it felt like she read my diary and then was like, I got to publish a book. <laughs> so here's the difference. Perfectionism at its core is about trying to earn acceptance. Think about that for a second. If I buy the perfect leather tote bag that everybody has online, if my house is always clean, if my kids are well-behaved, if I'm the right weight and I've got the perfect highlights and the right beachy wave or whatever, I will be accepted. That's what it's about, right? Mm -hmm. So healthy striving, on the other hand, is self-focused. How can I improve? Perfectionism is other-focused. What will they think? Right? Yes. So, <laughs> wow. I don't know why that got me so much. Yes, 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 yes. I wish you could because see Lisa's like face. I sound like I'm parcel-tonguing. <laughs> yeah, no, that was it. I was like, I love a good hiss. I thought you were just like, yes. <laughs> that was me kissing like a cat. Yeah, Thank that's you. definitely, definitely true. So, Now that we've set up how terrifying perfectionism is, what if she just left us hanging? Kidding. So she says one of the ways to combat perfectionism is to cultivate self-compassion. And self-compassion has three main elements. First, it's self-kindness. This means being as nice to yourself as you would be to others when you make a mistake. It's so hard. It's so hard. It is so hard. Second, it's recognizing our common humanity. No matter what you're going through in life, you're not alone. Anytime you're struggling with something, know that there are other people out there who share in that challenge. Third, it's practicing mindfulness by allowing ourselves to actually feel what we're feeling without over-identifying with those feelings. All feelings are temporary. None define you. Acknowledging what's there gives you the ability to move forward more effectively. So when you embrace these three practices, you'll find yourself showing up as a higher version of yourself even when you make mistakes. So can I give an example of how uh, this didn't work? So what was the oh, first one again? Oh, yeah. So the first one is self-kindness. Okay. So when I went to, to college as a freshman, I went to Indiana University, and I was terrified. I knew one person vaguely, and I had only talked to my roommate over the phone mm-hmm. in my dorm. And so it was terrifying for me to go. And on the drive there, I kind of lost my mind. Like I was exhausted and tired. We packed up, we stopped (laughs) and we were eating dinner and I got the giggles and I couldn't stop. My dad was walking me and I was just crying. Like I was so, it was emotionally traumatic for me like to to leave and to go where I knew literally no one. Oh, Um, terrifying. And I'd never been to sleepaway camp. I'd never, you know what I mean? Like, Oh my God. So I remember my dad, my mom was like, everybody was great. But my dad took me walking out around my, my dorm and he was like, so I didn't do the first one, which is I didn't have compassion myself because I was just objectively terrified. But he did the second and he said, honey, 
millions of people go to college every year around the world and they make it. Some don't, but they, they make it. Mm-hmm. You're going to make it too. Yeah. And they're all just as scared. And I didn't have the third one yet. I didn't have the capacity to feel my feelings and like yeah. name them and say what they yeah. are. But just that second one was really helpful in the moment because yeah. it reminded me that I wasn't wrong or weird for having this experience. I'm like, exactly. not, you know, because there were also kids who were like, fuck yeah, I can't wait to get out of my parents' house. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I was just like, and it's hard I not to know. judge yourself. Like, how come it's yes. so easy for them? Why is it so hard for me? Yeah. yeah. It was terrifying. That second, that that's an example of that. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. And even that. practicing parts, pieces of each of these could just bring you a little bit relief. It did. A little bit relief. Thank you. Of a, a little bit relief. <laughs> Don't Can you hurt me now? <laughs> You're here. Compassion's all, I, all need I need to know. And you will live wholeheartedly. And you will be authentic. And shame will make the flowers. Die. <laughs> okay, it's been a hot minute since we did a little Broadway duet. Les okay. Mis. Okay, listen, everybody, we're doing great. This is the very last guidepost that I want to talk Nailed about it. today. Guidepost seven, cultivating play and rest, letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth. I don't know what you're talking about. This chapter laid me flat on my ass. I just want everyone to know this is a big chapter for me. Did it help? It sounds like it helped you cultivate rest. Who can know? Because here we are in a mid-morning podcast session, but Brene <laughs> and I got up early to do notes. Brene says that her research makes one thing very clear. In the long run, work does not work without play. Mm-hmm. When have you heard this before? I'll work and no play makes Jack a crazy Dull boy. boy. Dull boy. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and makes Jack Nicholson a terrifying actor. So mm-hmm. there are a few key properties of play. It's time spent without purpose. It's something you don't want to end, something you lose track of time while you're doing. And it it dissolves your hyper self-consciousness. You lose yourself in the action. So Play is the opposite of how most achievers live their lives. Everything has to be for a specific aim. Time must be tracked intensely, and we're constantly concerned with how we're appearing to others. As such, play is written off as trivial or foolish. But Brene says play isn't a luxury. It's actually a necessity for us to operate in the fullness of our potential. This is because the opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. (gasps) Yep. (laughs) I know. I really reacted to that. I really reacted to that when I listened to it. I think I like reclined my seat back and took a belly breath. I grabbed my pearls. You did. You did. But truly, the opposite of play is not work. It's depression. What's the opposite of work? Who can know money? (laughs) Idleness, maybe. Okay. Idleness, maybe. So she says the same goes for rest. Many people see rest as a luxury and vilify it with an I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of attitude. But again, I know. But again, the exact opposite is true. Without appropriate rest, you prevent yourself from fully experiencing the moments of your days. 
Furthermore, the time you spend working is a shoddy metric for progress. What matters most is the quality of the attention and energy you bring to what you do. So the ways you can practice play include... One, creating regular time for unstructured play. Get physical, dance, play games, throw a ball, be with other people, and let your inner child free. And she she does recommend a few other books in this chapter to read about play if you're curious about the research and, and ways to incorporate it. Number two, practice bringing a playful mindset to the activities of each day. Ask, how would I approach this if I were having fun? Or what would I do? And everyone else in the accounting office is like, Cheryl, I'm trying to be on a TPR meeting. TPR reports. TPR reports. Loving it. Printing it. Filing it. Kissing it. They're like, Cheryl, we're not in a musical. Yeah, she's like, you might not be yet. But I bring play to every ounce of my work. <laughs> so you could ask, how would I approach this if I were having fun? Or what would I do next if this were just a big game? Number three, notice when the thought that play and rest are luxuries shows up in your mind. That's like a warning sign that you're in need of rejuvenation. Use it as an opportunity to recommit to your top self-care practices. Okay. So. The last concept I'm going to talk about is this idea of a joy and meaning list. So Brene and her husband had what a lot of couples had. They had a dream list, things that they wanted to accomplish or get, Mm -hmm. milestones Mm -hmm. they wanted to hit, kind of like a bucket list. So things like a better car or a house with another bedroom, a better kitchen, more money, But she noticed that this constant striving for the next thing and the next thing didn't actually make life better or help her feel more fulfilled. So instead, she decided to create a joy and meaning list. She and her husband asked themselves this question. When things are going really well in our family, what does it look like? And in answering that question, they came up with a list of what makes their family work. Things like Good sleep, eating well, having enough time to pee were all on that list. And I really resonated with this because yesterday I was so overscheduled. I had to be late for something just so I could brush my teeth. (laughs) So she says, when we compared our dream list to our joy and meaning list, we realized that by merely letting go of the list of things we want to accomplish and acquire, we would actually be living our dream, not striving to make it happen in the future but living it right now. So that is the briefest overview of The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. And I'm just going to tell you, buy this book. And if you want to learn more about the author or take that quiz, the assessment of where you are in the guideposts, you can check that out at her website, brenebrown.com, and it's under the Gifts Hub. Misty, did this book really need to be written? Absolutely, 1,000%. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Okay. What did you try to put into practice from this book, and how did it affect you? So this book really gave me radical permission for rest and for play. And I'm a little bit sad that I'm still coming at it from a mindset of like, oh, this will actually make me better at, you know, working and, you know, just being aware of that thought. But I'm really excited at the thought that, like, Play is something that I need in my life because I am happiest, you know, when I'm crafting or dancing or baking 
or just having a new experience and and feeling like I have radical permission for that is really exciting. So I am going to actively carve out way more time for rest and play. I love it. Yeah. Um, do you feel that Brene missed anything? I really don't, especially now with her new intersectional introduction at the top. I really mm-hmm. feel like she covered so many bases. I, you know, as in our discussion on this episode, I am realizing I really would have loved, and I think this is probably its own separate book. So Brene, here's a book idea. Please write it. Thank you. About how to discover what our authentic selves are if we don't know what that is. And that probably involves, spoiler alert, a lot of rest and play, you know, to see yeah. what you like. But that that's something that I really would have loved to know, but it does feel like it's maybe a separate endeavor. I think it's a separate individual endeavor. Well, Personally, yes. it required a lot of therapy for me. Exactly, because there's not a one-step formula for this. Yeah, it's absolutely an individual journey for each person, but even sharing ideas about how to start exploring yourself, you know, and like kind of the thought patterns that would be helpful in doing that, I think would be amazing. For me in therapy, what it was, was unlocking when I had an inner voice, whose voice it was. Oh my God. Say like, more was about it my that. dad's voice? Yeah. Was it my mom's voice? Was it a manager's or a friend's voice versus when was it my voice? Oh my God. Yeah. It takes a long time. Thank you for that 10 tum nugget of wisdom that you just casually dropped in the Q&A section. Who would you buy this book for and who would you never buy it for? In my opinion, literally every single person needs to read this book, especially those of us, myself included, I'm going to reread this book and pick it up many more times, who overschedule ourselves to death or really struggle with perfection. Mm-hmm. Or workaholics, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I cannot think of a person this would be damaging to. Is there a listener challenge? Yeah. Uh, including homework for me and for any listener who wants to join in? Yes. I invite you, Lisa, and everyone listening to make a joy and meaning list. So think about what the con- <laughs> That's what I was hoping you would say. Think about what the conditions are when you feel your best and write them down. And you can wait to do this until you're feeling really good. But are you like, oh, I got great sleep last night. And then I went outside for 15 minutes and I made sure I was hydrated, you know, and I let myself watch a movie, like just starting to to understand what makes you feel amazing. I love it. Misty, great job. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we would love to read or even just hear parts of your joy and meaningless. Or what it was like for you to make that list exactly. if you don't want to share what's on the list. Exactly. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us, please email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. All the handles will be in show notes. So that's it. I hope this episode was as helpful for you all as reading the book was for me because it truly, it truly hit something deep. Okay. Thank I you. I love it. It hit deep. Well, with that, may your... I don't know. Shame? No. No. Imperfection? No. May your courage, compassion, and connection be abundant. Abundant. Nice work. Nice work. 
Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Sav. Inimitable. There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at ghypodcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review because it helps helps other people find our show. You know who else needs to find it? Your friends. Tell all of your friends. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.